0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who, along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics in sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening, and enjoy.
1: Welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Lindsay Chapman, and I'm a first-year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to get to introduce this panel today, Direct to Consumer, Disrupting and Engaging Today's Sports Fans, presented by Rakuten, and to get to introduce our panelists. We're joined on stage by Jen Farron, Chief Marketing Officer for Craft Sports and Entertainment, Kat Frederick, Chief Marketing Officer for Ticketmaster, Portia Archer, SVP for Direct-to-Consumer Services for NBC Sports, Carolyn Tish Blodgett, SVP and Head of Global Brand Marketing for Peloton, John Faris, Chief Product and Data Officer for Rakuten Intelligence, and Kristen Bernert, SVP for Business Operations at MSG Sports. This panel will be 45 minutes, followed by 10 minutes of Q&A from the audience. If you'd like to submit a question, please do so on Twitter using the hashtag direct2fans, using the number 2. And with that, I will turn it over to Kristen. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much, Lindsay. Uh, welcome. Uh, to the panel. Uh, it's very fitting that this panel is in the, the Pat Summit room. Uh, we've got a nice starting lineup of women on this panel, and then our sixth man,
3: <laughs>
2: John. John, i got to ask you a really important question. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? Let's talk about your feelings. Uh,
3: very happy. This is
2: great. Excited to be here.
3: Yes. Okay.
2: John, we'd love for you to just kind of start us off and, and tell us about uh, Rakuten Intelligence and, and what you do there.
3: Uh, sure. Let me start with, start with Rakuten, um, just so people uh, have a better sense of what the company does. It's focusing a lot on building up its global brand and especially its U.S. presence. Um, to oversimplify, it started in Japan and is the Amazon of Japan. It's greatly oversimplifying it, and then has a bunch of additional businesses, credit card, travel, um, and actually is building out a mobile network in Japan, which, which it's also gonna export. And on the global side, it's uh, very focused on direct relationship based on its uh, Japanese business. Globally, it wants to be a membership company. And so the US business that it has is Ebates, getting rebranded to Rakuten, which is a points-back membership, cash-back rewards program. And The focus there is very much about um, really being able to collect data and give a personalized experience to those consumers and and tailor that experience. Rakuten Intelligence specifically is a division that is all about um, data and analytics. We actually have about five million consumers that uh, opted into a panel where we can see their e-commerce behavior. And so what that lets us do is see all sorts of cool early stage uh, trends, companies, brands, especially in this direct to consumer space um, where uh, it's really all about uh, knowing that end customer, having a direct relationship, and having all that data about the consumer.
2: Excellent, excellent. You guys definitely made a splash here in the US with with your partnership with the Warriors. By the way, how many sponsorship guys have introduced themselves? you while you're here?
3: A uh, uh, handful.
2: handful? <laughs> yeah. hope our guys did. Uh, anyway, so we have a lot to cover today. Uh, we're going to talk about the direct-to-consumer landscape. We're going to talk about just consumer behavior in general. Uh, we have an amazing group of, of um, marketing people and CMOs here that we're going to talk about um, acquiring data and uh, acquiring customer data and then using that uh, to grow their business and and then how do they retain uh, those customers, and then we're gonna talk a little bit about um, what's in the future for direct-to-consumer marketing. Um, and then we're gonna leave some time for questions. And I wanted to have some fun on this panel, uh, but Jessica Gelman wouldn't let me. <laughs> if you guys know Jessica in the, in the room, I was, I was told that I couldn't have fun. Uh, so we were gonna play uh, two truths and a lie, and I was told no, um, couldn't do that. And then I wanted to, I wanted to open this by like dancing in the audience with you guys, like Ellen, I thought it was gonna be my moment. (laughs) Uh, And then I was told no to that too. So I'm kind of stuck with, like you guys, as you're thinking about questions throughout, we have some prizes, some may see them as prizes, where's my bag? Um, I've got some Knicks and Rangers hats, there it is. So anybody who asks a question that, that we use, uh, you can get your pick of a Knicks or Rangers hat. Um, I'm from Ohio but I've fashioned myself a New Yorker now and, and we don't like Boston or the <laughs> sports people here. So as many people that can wear our hats walking around the city of Boston is excellent. Uh, so you're gonna get you know, you're gonna get a goodie for that. Um, if you're and from if Boston, prefer please.
4: Patriots or Revolution or Uprising hat, I'll, I'll swap you on the back end. That's easy. <laughs> easy over there, Tim. Easy over <laughs> on there. The back end.
2: Okay, so let's get right into it. We have a really diverse group of panelists today, which is wonderful, and, and so we have um, our media expert with, with Portia. So we'll, we'll talk about that first, about what's happening in the media landscape with consumer behavior, um, which is a lot, right? You see a lot of cord-cutting. You're seeing shorter attention spans. Like, I'm sure people are on their phones right now. Um, maybe a little bit in terms of declines in in viewership on linear television at least. Um, How are you at NBC Sports addressing that shift in behavior and maybe even capitalizing on it? Sure.
5: Um, I have to give a little shout-out to Saquon Barkley, who couldn't make the trip. So I'm giving him a shout-out because I think that's part of the reason why this room is so full, <laughs> so I, 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 I appreciate that. Um, but to, to address your question, so uh, NBC Sports Gold is um, the direct-to-consumer offering um, of live streaming video um, of the sports that fans love. And for the sports that we operate in, at least today, they're large-scale, sports on the global stage, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily so um, in the U.S., with a few exceptions. We've got Premier League and we've got PGA Tour Golf Mm -hmm. um, that are sort of massly consumed. Um, But some of our other sports, while they are appealing on the global stage, um, aren't necessarily as appealing in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so we think that that's a white space of opportunity that we can grow into and that there's real upside there. So, where we may have on NBC Sports Television, um, or NBCSN, some declines in viewership across some of the bigger sort of ball and stick properties in the U.S., we see significant interest, demand, and consumption of these sort of global sports um, that have appeal um, around the world and um, increasingly so in the U.S. And so that's, primar- that's one of the primary responsibilities, I'll call it, of the direct-to-consumer business is to make sure that NBC Sports Group is in position to, to pivot, mm-hmm. to, to leverage the opportunity that may be presenting itself from some of the declines and fragmentation in viewership on the linear side. Um, so I think we're doing a pretty good job of it.
2: It's really impressive how you've been able to grow the business over a really short period of time and, and really smart strategy to, to serve an underserved community. Um, you know, looking at the, the commerce industry, this is you know, your, your expertise, John. Um, the direct to consumer model in, in commerce, how is it disrupting the traditional retail landscape?
3: Yeah, so I think there's a couple things going on. The, the value out of the retailer, um, it's sort of been offset by the fact that the retailer often wasn't sharing that data back to the brand and then the brand would either get blindsided or would not have a good sense of where consumer behavior was going so the the trend around the direct-to-consumer has been also to it's almost um, uh, reasons why you can collect data about the consumer so you you see a lot of these um, especially the digitally native brands from the last say five or ten years it's a, okay, I'm gonna offer you a custom suit um, or something that's very specific to um, your taste. So I'm gonna show you different glasses that you're gonna wear and make it easy for you to pick them, send them back, or I'm gonna um, you know, send you a whole set of outfits. So it's either letting the consumer be very specific and customize things, mm-hmm. which just doesn't work in traditional retail, or someone is curating those in a very personalized, tailored way, either using humans or machine learning. So. That's been one. The retailers just ha- were never set up to do that. Um, and, and then I think the second trend, if it's possible, is to just flip everything on its head and, and turn whatever you can into a subscription service. So there's an ongoing relationship with the consumer. It's sort of, that's the way media has worked. But you know, a bicycle has become a subscription service, which is really cool. Um, there's a company called Quip, which is a toothbrush, which has become a subscription service. So it's very clever what the what the brands are trying to do because they want to have a reason to talk to the consumer, gather data about the consumer on an ongoing basis. For sure,
2: for sure. Um, you know, Kat, the, the ticketing business uh, has changed significantly over the years, and, and it seems like it changes daily uh, in, in your world. In yes, um, Ticketmaster, you know, your competitive advantage really is your data right. over everybody else, and so you have some really interesting insights. So what, what do you see in the changing you know, consumer behavior at Ticketmaster, um, particularly over the past year even, just taking a look at it because it changes so fast? Right. And then how do you envision those behaviors continuing to evolve?
6: I, I mean, for us, I think consumer expectations are uh, explosive right now in terms of always being on, always being reliable, always being convenient, personal, mobile. Um, and, and in that kind of landscape, uh, a marketer's responsibility to drive value back to their consumers um, is, is higher than ever. Um, and so as I think about uh, the way that Ticketmaster is investing in its core capabilities, it's really around identity-based ticketing. And it is flipping the model, as John said, directly on its head and so thinking less about what we have a commercial agenda to push and really ensuring that the right fans are getting the right events to them at the right time in on the right surface, all of that um, is powered by the data and the technology that we're building. So it's moving really fast and I think consumer expectations and the drive between our fans and our clients is really driving us towards um, where um, we will be driving value in their lives that then drives back to a commercial benefit.
2: Absolutely. Very interesting. So, you know, Carolyn, you actually, you made a really interesting comment to me. You said uh, Peloton isn't reacting to consumer behavior, right? You're actually creating it. Uh, What did you mean by that?
7: yeah so if you think about <clears throat> the fitness industry in particular, we kind of start there and broaden out. think about the fitness industry we didn't create working out at home. You, people have always exercised at home, but you got an exercise bike or elliptical or whatever machine, and you probably used it for a few weeks or, you know, at best a few weeks, probably a few days, and then it turned into a coat hanger or a coat rack, and that's sort of the typical fitness journey. <laughs> if you wanted, but then there was also boutique fitness, and boutique fitness was all about getting this incredibly motivating and inspiring workout, but there was, it wasn't convenient, it wasn't on your own schedule, and it was really expensive. So what Peloton has been able to do is really bridge the gap and allow you to get this um, incredibly motivating and inspiring fitness um, regimen, but have it in the comfort and convenience of your own home. And so that's how Peloton transformed the fitness industry, but that's not, it's not a consumer behavior unique to fitness. So if you think about what Seamless Web or Postmates has done for the food industry, it's not new to be able to get takeout or order in at home, but it used to be a kind of subpar pizza you would get. Mm-hmm. Now you have access to, we live in New York, the world's best restaurants, or New York's best restaurants, and get it from your app, from an app and Amazon did the same thing, and every Netflix did the same thing, you used to be able to watch TV, but there were five different channels and you had to watch what was on. Now all of a sudden you can have access to all of the best movies in the comfort and convenience of your own home. So there's this broader behavior that Peloton is leading the charge in one category of, of I want the best type of fill in the blank, but I want it on my schedule and when it works for me.
2: Absolutely. Um, did anybody else walk by the, the Peloton retail space and think again? Man, I really should get one of those. Does anybody else do that? Because I do it every time I, I walk by. I didn't plan
7: this store there yeah. for this, but it was a good. We yeah. went this morning. It was good. <laughs> yeah, it's great good location.
2: For sure. Um, so you know, obviously, data is at the center of the entire model. Um, you know, Jen at it, it, it Craft Sports. Um, what new initiatives in the NFL with the Patriots are creating new data? Um, and how have you used that data effectively?
4: Yeah, sure. So this past season, um, the NFL launched a, a ticketing network. And the goal of the network was really to sort of aggregate everything that was happening out on the secondary market and try to rein in some of the, the wild, wild west that was happening and really ensure that you know, consumers and fans were getting tickets that were authentic and, and validated, if you will. And so Ticketmaster, you know, happens to be a partner of the Patriots. But what, um, what we don't have a need to do is sell primary tickets right now. The Patriots are fortunate enough to, to be in a situation where we're sold out. But all of our tickets that are transacting on the secondary market and bringing fans to our stadium were people that we had no idea who they were. And so, um, over the course of this past season, our friends at Kager um, have, you know, working with the NFL, they've created all of these dashboards and all of these reports for the 32 clubs across the league that help us to understand who these customers are and, and um, where they're coming from. And so, we've used that data in, an, in a number of ways, and I'll share an example, but we had, um, I think, close to 60,000 net new customers this year alone, and it might have even been higher once we did the last playoff game. Um, but we we knew uh, for one particular game during the season that the tickets that were transacting were transacting at such a high price, um, and we had I think moved almost seventeen thousand tickets. Um, out of the primary season ticket member hands and into the hands of other individuals. And so when you do something like that, you really want to ensure that you are delivering a great experience for those fans that are coming. And something that we have not historically done um, with a lot of Frequency at the Patriots is done halftime shows. You know, we sort of focus on halftime for us with our season ticket base and people that come to all of the games their behaviors are move around the stadium, you know, go and interact with one another, meet in these communal areas, um, get a break, take some, you know, get some food and beverage. Um, but we recognize that with a different audience and with a different fan base coming to a particular game, uh, it moved us to make a different decision to do something we haven't done before. And we hired a band to come and perform, and we had them perform both pre-game outside in our fan activation area, and we had them perform at halftime. And then we were able to, on the back end, survey those people that came to the game. And we always survey our season ticket holders. But we were incrementally able to survey all of these net new customers and ask them about their experience and what they enjoyed. Um, and it also allowed us to, on the front end of that match, to provide them with information from a very operational standpoint of what to, where to go and, and what to expect, right? When you have an, an audience that's typically accustomed to driving from either the north or south or parking in the same parking lot and and having the same tailgating experience over and over when you know you're going to have 17,000 people show up at your venue who might not have been there before because you don't know if you've talked to them or interacted with them. Um, And so we would use all of that data on the front end to correspond directly with them through email to say, here's some arrival profile information you should need to know. Here's when our parking lot's open. Here we're here's where our ride share lots are, and then here's all of the activities that are taking place during the course of the game so that we are able to make their experience even better and, and in turn, obviously helping to, uh, you know, operationalize some things on our end. So, again, delivering that really targeted experience but also understanding that if you have these new customers, how are you going to use that data to make business decisions that are in the moment and and do something different or pivot out of your normal behaviors?
2: Really, that's... Pretty impressive, uh, Kat. Is there anybody doing it better than Jen in the NFL right now? Watch your answer.
4: Everyone's doing it, really. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Kager, right? Um, no,
6: I mean shameless plug for Kager. It 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 is about being yeah. able to see across the ecosystem right. and also be able to share best practices. I mean, with that NFL um, with that NFL data set, we know through the Ticketmaster uh, presence software. I mean, we, we've added at least two, you know, or nearly, Brendan will correct me any second now, but two million net new names to file just from being on this mobile digital platform. And that's an incredible transformation yeah. that happened in a very, very short sure, period time. of time. Um, and that's just an entirely new, rich data set for which you are marketing better, you're marketing smarter, you're operationally making great decisions, and... and Being able for us to be able to see that data and feed that back in um, not only helps us in our sports marketing, but as you think across the Ticketmaster catalog, um, you know, you're starting to see where there's greater affinity between this this area in sports, NFL and tennis and NFL and concerts and and so on and so forth, which really provides a much better consumer experience from a marketing perspective. Absolutely.
2: It's crazy you mentioned that the mobile ticketing—it's been a big shift for you guys. Huge and, shift. And, and can you talk about just the new marketing channels uh, you've had success on, and maybe give us an example of how you've used them? For,
6: for sure. I mean, going back to the NFL, um, Ticketmaster is largely a very strong performance marketing organization. We think about measurement. We think about the efficacy of that marketing. Um, we use a lot of data and analytics to do that. Um, And so, when you start to think about offline and out of home and the bridge between that, you run into a perceived measurement gap. We worked with a company this year as we we did an activation around the NFL draft where we really blanketed the city with digital out of home and, and a lot of offline activations, but then used mobile technology, mobile banner ads to really measure the efficacy of those who saw it because they were, we knew that they were transiting by these digital out-of-home ads um, and be able to know how well that's working. And what we saw was 200% lift in visits, 50% increases in um, conversions. And so you begin to be able to directionally quantify the value of that, those kinds of marketing efforts. Um, back to our holistic marketing strategy, and it's, it gives us opportunity to learn. We're constantly thinking about how we test and learn, and, and um, so we're, we're willing to bridge into new strategies because we've got some measurement behind it.
2: For sure, and that's, that's a great use of, of first-party data, and, you know, John, we've talked about just the dangers of a company using, continue to use third-party data. Can you just talk a little bit more about uh, that trend going from first party and no longer using third party, and why?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the trend is to disintermediate uh, as much as possible between the content or the physical good or the digital good and the consumer uh, unless there's some significant value add that's that's happening in there, and the value add of distribution in this sort of day and age is is not as critical as it used to be, and um, there's been the trend of enabling uh, a brand to be able to sell its good, there, there's basically the shovel makers, um, the, the arms dealers, the infrastructure guys have now set it up so that if you have some cool um, offering, physical, digital, you can get it to consumers, you can get a storefront up in one hour, you can have the payment side of it taken care of. Um, and that just used to not be the case. Yep. And so you don't now have to share the economics with all these, these players in the middle. Um, so for all the incumbents, the, the risk is that their value add is going away and they need to be more relevant. Um, and the most important thing is to be relevant with the consumer and be as tailored, as customized, as specific to what they want. For sure.
2: And, and Jen, you, know, the, you, you mentioned the Patriots not having to s- sell tickets as much. How many? How many rings do you have, by the way?
4: Um, six. <laughs> Shameful. I have the same as Shameful. Tom Brady. <laughs> Shameful.
2: Uh, but it's pretty much an unlimited opportunity at retail uh, with with um, with merchandise. Um, what are you doing to acquire customers there in that space?
4: Yeah. So so I think we're in a bit of a, a unique position. You know, unlike you know other consumers, we have what I would describe as like one and a half physical brick and mortar stores. We have our primary Patriot store, and then we have another um, ancillary store on the same campus in the Patriot Place spine. And and then we have an e-commerce business. And so, you know, we're competing with NFL Shop. We're competing with Fanatics. We're competing with Amazon. We're competing with all of the other brick and mortar Olympia and, and, and dicks. And so um, as a standalone entity, if you will, I think we spend a lot of time just Finding, trying to find niches that we can focus on, right? Direct-to-consumer and email marketing for us is still our number one um, revenue-generating platform, and, and so that, for us right now today, is, is still the most important thing we do in keeping our customers engaged and offering them products that we want, and we certainly use things like Facebook and, and, and Google Ads. But we've also started to recently, and it's funny, Kat and I were talking about this this earlier, but we started to use... Um, a tool called Criteo, and, and Criteo is used right. to do some, you know, it, it AI, uses AI, and it, and it basically, for anyone that comes to our site um, and, and looks at our products, it then sort of allows us to follow them where they go and serve, serve up ads as they move around the web. And we were saying, I was yeah. saying a cat like for us, it's been a really good, Product offering, um, it's not its not our number one tool, but it fits into a portfolio for us where there's a, a pretty high conversion for a low click cost. Um, but we have a very specific product, right? right? I'm trying to sell you a hat or a T-shirt, and if you buy it this morning versus this afternoon or the next day, as long as we make that purchase and, and acquire that customer as opposed to, again, our competitors – it works really well, but right. we were saying that for something like tickets that that you know sort of expire, it's not as valuable. I th- I, th- I think that's exactly right.
6: I, I I get asked a lot, you know, what is the right recipe to move your product? You know, which pro- which technologies do you use? Which partners do you use? And just depending on the size and complexity of both the data and right. the business that you're in, um, not every solution is going to work for every. Um, for for every company and something like Credio that can't uh, well it probably could but just in the in the way that we market and how specifically we're marketing specific matchups right. in times specific days, times yeah. you know in a perishable way it, it it isn't as strong of a platform for us and therefore we actually run most of our targeting and audience generation with our first party data. Um, but with our own data science models and then push that into our technology partners rather than leveraging our technology partners to do that holistically for us.
4: But I think it's really important that, to exactly. understand that, right, what works for somebody isn't going to work for, for somebody else. And there's also sort of slivers of time mm-hmm. where a particular tool or technology might work when you have a need to sell tickets on the, prim- you know, primary mm-hmm. tickets versus right. secondary tickets. And so all of those things, it's it's really being, it's important to look at where your business is and what you're trying to accomplish in a moment and not always want to just follow what everybody else is doing. You know your business best. Um, right. You're most familiar with what's going to work or not work. So it's that notion of don't be afraid to try something, but if it's not working, kind of make sure you, you, you step aside um, and look for a better tool or a better opportunity. And, and, you know, the results will tell you if it's working or not, exactly. and for us, the, the results are there. and and, and for Cat in this particular example, it just wasn't. We I found that really it. interesting that, you know, we're having success with something and, and they find it that's to a, be. It's
6: a and, great point. And I think it's exactly what Carolyn said earlier, is you, you as a marketer in this day and age need to be able to pivot and yeah. you need to be yes. able to be agile. Uh, and and you have to set up an organization that structurally can do that.
2: Absolutely. So we, we've talked a lot about acquiring customers. Um, now we're going to talk a little bit about how to grow and retain them. Um, and, Porsche, you know, you... How are you right now using um, all the data that you have on consumer viewing habits to grow NBC Sports Gold in particular?
5: Yeah, so Sports Gold is a compilation, really, of a number of different sports, and we call them sports verticals. And the key is to have the content available live that fans want to enjoy. Mm and to, as often as you can, have that content exclusively. So if we can keep the cost of acquiring the rights to be able to do those two things, live and exclusive, uh, at a manageable level, um, fans of those sports will come. Um, that sounds very pedestrian, but that's, sports is a little different in, in that way. So um, our number one priority is to make sure that within the NBC Sports Group portfolio of sports, which includes the Olympics and some of these sports, again, that in the U.S. may not be as popular but still have a sort of upside potential for growth, um, making sure that we can leverage that content such that we can make it available to As many fans as we can, and we have a pretty large pipe to be able to do that through across MBCU and also if we think about Comcast mm-hmm. um, and so we try to do that as often as we can to both serve that underserved audience but also to make others aware that that content is available and they be they may be more of a casual fan, if you will, um, but to make sure that they're aware and bring them into the fold so I think PGA Tour, what we're doing with PGA Tour Live is a really good example of that, um, where we have PGA Tour Live on Sports Gold, which is a digital streaming proposition for um, the early rounds of feature groups um, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of a particular golf tournament. And that's only available to you exclusively on NBC Sports Gold. At the same time, we've got this property called Golf Channel. And Golf Channel does a fantastic job of making sure that we can um, educate and raise awareness about the availability of PGA Tour Live for golf fans. So we're going right into that audience that we know are fans of the sport and making sure through, again, a large pipe that they're aware what's out there. Then we've got an even larger pipe across the NBCU portfolio. So on the Today Show, we might have a, a golfer That -hmm. participates in one of the PGA Tour Live, or PGA Tour events, and is going to be featured on PGA Tour Live in one of the feature groups that will be talking on the Today Show or or an evening late night show um, about PGA Tour Live. So I think we do a good job of, across the NBCU and Comcast where appropriate portfolio, of making sure that we attract. fans of a particular sport, but also make sure that we grow the sport from the sense that we're making um, fans or you know, that may be more casual in their interest aware that there's something out there um, for them to enjoy potentially as well. Um, and then in terms of retaining um, customers, again, as, as long as we keep that rights portfolio of live and exclusive content, we're in pretty good shape. Um, but we have to give them a really good experience um, around streaming and enjoying that content. And I think our, I'm biased obviously, but I think our pr- platform is, is really unparalleled in that regard um, because we are integrated with NBC Sports and we're on the same technology platform, if you will. that you enjoy the Olympics on, and that you enjoy the Super Bowl, and that you enjoy the rugby uh, or the um, soccer World Cup. So uh, if we can continue to keep that experience strong, um, we'll be able to scale it to both acquire new subscribers and to continue to retain the ones that we have.
2: For sure, and I'm sure it's like growing their avidity as they go. They get more and more entrenched. The more content that they consume, the more they, you know, love the sport that they might have loved before. Um, and you know, watching watching what Peloton has done, um, I have you know friends who are addicts and raving fans that talk about uh, your product. What have you done to inspire such incredible loyalty at Peloton?
7: Yeah. Um, you know, people ask, us, ask me that all the time on the marketing side, and that's where my job is probably one of the easiest in the world because people do have that relationship with it. But if you go back to what makes Peloton unique in the fitness industry, think about <clears throat> you know home exercise equipment before, their entire job was to sell you the product and basically hope they never heard from you again because the only time you, they heard from you was when something went wrong and it broke. But for us, that's just the beginning of our, of our, our relationship with our members. So our entire company is built around retaining and engaging our members. So this is everything from coming out with new software updates to launching new content. It's all designed to keep you engaged and keep you riding, riding now, running. Sorry, used to be just riding now, running as well. And that is kind of the core of what we do. So our software team, for example, launched recently something called Challenges. So this is the idea that you'll ride a certain number of miles for a month, and then you'll get a badge either um, gold, silver, or bronze. And that's incredibly motivating to people. So now we saw a huge uptick in engagement when we, launch these, when we do these challenges at the beginning of the month. We see the same thing, we um, continue to launch new content. So we launched yoga a few months ago, and this was again to be able to have people, we, we hear all the time from our members that they are completely addicted and they want more and more Peloton. So what we so instead, of, you know, instead of asking you to ride seven days a week, now you're riding with us three days a week, and maybe you're running outdoors on our app two days a week, and you're doing yoga on streaming to your TV a few days a week. So, kind of continuing to make that subscription more valuable by giving you more and more content, and then also the software that enables you to continue to stay motivated. It's kind of the core of what we do.
2: You guys are doing a wonderful job, and. Um, your daughter, she uh, she had a snack before I was watching her, and now she has lunch.
7: Yeah, she's eaten her way through this you entire what's, what's her name? Penelope.
2: Penelope? What's up, Penelope? How about
6: that?
7: Future Harvard basketball star, hopefully. All right. <laughs> Just kidding, I went to Yale. But I you went you guys to Yale? Played? Did you play ball you know. But I know there's some strong Harvard basketball fans yeah. here, so I need to there's
2: the Oh, there's, the, yeah, there's yeah. the chief Harvard the- basketball player. <laughs> right out right in front. All right. Uh, <laughs> so um, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the future now and what we see in, in direct-to-consumer marketing. And John, you, know, you guys have access to so much data with your panel, um, and I'm sure you're seeing a lot of trends. What can we expect in e-commerce in particular uh, in the future? Is it going to continue to grow at the pace that it is? Is it going to slow down? What do you see?
3: Yeah, so I'll, I'll hit a one more general point, um, which relates to what are just talking about. You had mentioned there's sort of all the analytics used for customer acquisition and, and growth, and it's where a lot of the, the early stage D2C, they just pour all their money into acquisition. Mm-hmm. It's all about growth. Um, but part of the reason why the companies that are doing it right are, are going to win and are winning is because they also – then invest in using the data and analytics about what the consumer is doing to increase customer lifetime value engagement. And by doing that, then they can spend more on acquisition, because if they just look at it as transactional or the traditional retail model that was transactional, the value is just that one purchase. Now if this is going to lead to someone buying stuff over the course of three or four years and you actually understand those economics, you may be willing to go on social media, digital media, spend three, four times more than you thought was economic Mm -hmm. because you understand this cycle back and forth so it's only going to accelerate because the companies that are really good at data are going to win Um, the other trend which is less live event and and um, entertainment specific but that's really hitting e-commerce hard is just the shipping and logistics um, that last mile delivery i mean the it's crazy what's going on but it's enabling a lot of these new business models where you can ship someone a whole bunch of stuff and have the economics work that they'll ship almost all of it back to you as long as that's giving you just enough crazy. data to curate and, and get smart and then there's the drones dropping stuff you know, on your front porch and, and all of those things and that's a huge uh, source of data and an area where the analytics and the data are gonna continue to make a big difference just about how to do shipping, distribution, logistics.
2: It's crazy what's happening right now, and Kat, we were talking about just the expectations of the consumer uh, just getting higher and higher, and like, how do you keep up uh, as the bar is constantly being raised?
6: I mean, it, it, it always, I mean, it's why we're here today. It comes back to the data and how we use it, um, not only in terms of acquisition, engagement, and lifetime value, but also... Um, what it means in terms of those consumer expectations and how they're changing. Uh, we, we, we talked a little bit backstage about, um, you know, there's growing regulation around privacy and marketers, uh, you know, historically had a responsibility to engage our fans in a way um, that was personal, but, but that's, that's rising. Fans are giving you their information, the benefit and the value that you have to deliver back is what earns you the right to continue that conversation. And for us, we take that critically seriously. Um, And and I also think that's why we rely on the data to help us navigate what the consumer preferences are, what the propensity uh, is around certain types of events, um, and continues to drive and, and really reinforce the direction that we go with our consumers. Our consumers tell us what they want, mm-hmm. rather than us pushing out, um, which you know, I think marketing lived in a world of spray and pray before, and you just can't, you can't survive in that landscape today.
4: And 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 we talked about this, you know, as Kat said backstage before, which was just, and it's being able to just move the needle as quickly as you can, right, and and being responsive. And I think that that's really what the data has allowed us to do. You know, you you talk about you have these tickets expire, and if you don't use them, you know, they're perishable. And, you know, even for us, to get somebody to come back again. So you have that one time where you can engage with them once, but if they've come and you want them to come back, you're selling a basketball ticket, a soccer ticket, a football ticket. And so it's just being so intelligent and on top of it that you're using the data in a timely fashion. Like I'll, I'll ping Jess after an event and be like, how quickly can you get me what I need to make a decision, you know, for something that's happening six days later? You know, mm-hmm. Or I'm not going to need this information for two weeks, but as soon as you have it, you know, get it to me so that we can start to think. So I feel like so much of it before was you'd take data, you'd analyze it, you'd evaluate it, and you'd make very long-term very strategic you know investments that were happening maybe down the road I think it's equally important to be a disruptor in terms of Correct. making decisions you know in the moment and at moments in time to, to shift
2: you definitely yeah. have to be nimble in today's day in, day and age around uh, consumer marketing um, you know looking at the future of, of media uh, Porsche, you know, there's, consumers are driven everything. So you're, you have so many different models now. You have, you have traditional cable and broadcast network and streaming services, and now pay, you know, pay-per-view is coming back, uh, making a comeback in, in boxing. Um, you know, there's so many different models. Do all the models continue to coexist in your mind, or do you see one of these models dying off?
5: I mean, you know, I... I I don't think that they'll die off. Mm-hmm. I think that the proportion that they're utilized may shift and change. But I think there's room for all of them, um, particularly in the sport landscape. This is, it's a passion play in, in many cases. and People have passions for more than one thing, um, and they want to be able to utilize it in some cases on a subscription basis, in some cases not, in some cases on a transactional basis. Um, in some cases on a microtransaction basis. Um, so I don't, I don't really see any one of them sort of dying out anytime soon, if at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things we, we just talked a little bit about what the future holds, and I just want to put in a plug, I mentioned this to you yeah. before we um, got up on stage, um, but I think there's a future for Peloton and, and, and Sports Gold Cycling Pass. I think that there's a possibility for us to do something okay. here. i trying plug to get a hold there. of you, Caroline. Now's your time. Um, but I think this, there's going to be um, an increased um, need to use the data to listen to what consumers and fans are telling you or what they may have been telling you in the past that you may not have paid attention to <laughs> we're and, and to use that to sort of inform your decisions. We see a lot of crossover between mm-hmm. sports and among sports that we may not necessarily have noticed if we weren't paying attention. For but People sure. were telling us that, but Absolutely. we were just looking at it in such an isolated, uh, desegregated kind of way. So being able to take in the data and then listen and, and use it to, to inform your decisions, so that you can continue to customize and personalize and increasingly make more convenient access to the content, in our case, that the fans enjoy, is something that we're gonna see just continue to sort of escalate and amplify in the future. Absolutely.
7: Can I add one point to that? Yeah. Um, so I, I totally agree with that. I think what, one of the things that we've seen, I come from a more traditional, marketing background where we did a lot of customer research of going out and surveying people and and asking their preferences on things but when you have a direct-to-consumer model you don't need to ask people so we know on a real-time basis what type of content is resonating, and we can continue to overproduce that type of content. We know what's not resonating with people, and we can pull back. So we know, you know, for example, that people were taking psych- strength classes after cycling classes, so let's just continue to program into that, and we don't need to say to people, do you want to do an arm, 10-minute arms after you do a 30-minute cycling class? We see that behavior happening, right. so that's what think we can kind of react in real time, just like Jen was saying before, and then we can also, we don't need to ask people what they want, because we can just continue to cater to it when you have the data yourself. Yeah, agreed.
2: Excellent. Now, uh, we're on to the really fun part of the program, the uh, audience Q&A, and Dan Waldman, where's Dan? Dan had two questions. You must want a Knicks and a Rangers hat, right? (laughs) So, you know, take your pick, come on down. (laughs) I'm <laughs> um, so I mean, only going to use one of your questions, uh, and Dan's question was, with the customer journey having so many more touch points than before, how are you using more granular data to better determine ROI and conversions? Does anyone want to take that? You want me to? That'd be oh. great. Sure.
7: Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, Peloton obviously is a considered purchase, so we absolutely see people going through multiple steps, and I think... What's unique, you know, if, you know, maybe 15 years ago, you would think about each of those steps in isolation. We think about them, we are, we are tracking people over time. So we know that you are potentially seeing our ad on TV, and then maybe you're going to our website. Then if any of you have done that while you're sitting here, you're probably now getting a lot of Facebook ads and we'll continue to retarget you. And they don't need to be kind of random messages. We can continue to take you, it's, it's kind of amazing actually, that we can take you on the exact journey we want to take you on because we know which ad to show you when, and we can continue to to kind of tell you that story along the way. What is unique about Peloton, and this isn't really answering your question, but what's unique about Peloton and what we are still adjusting for is the word-of-mouth effect. So once a product really becomes viral like Peloton has, there's this sort of unexplainable part of our attribution model that continues to get bigger and bigger, and that really is everybody telling their friends. And that's what we, you know, we have to adjust for that, but right now it's sort of the unexplainable part of it.
4: Yeah,
6: I, I would jump into that and say, you know, at our scale, we have, I mean, we we always say Ticketmaster's greatest asset is 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 our data. And where we can look at ROI becomes very, very granular. It comes down to how do you orchestrate the campaign in terms of does push come before email, before you know the ad? And and in certain audiences, do you even need that, right? When you get really granular, both in terms of your audience segmentation and the channels you employ, um, you realize that investments can be done strategically by genre, by category, by minor category, by matchup, et cetera. And that's where it gets really interesting because you think about how your, how your performance is in aggregate, but also down at the granular level and how do you use that information for reinforced learning.
2: Excellent. Um, next question, uh, it's coming from two people. I like that, tag <laughs> on. Uh, Maitley Aronde and, and Katie Colton are asking, uh, what is the one thing that keeps you up at night related to direct-to-consumer engagement? Jen?
4: Um, I, I think it's just making sure that you're you're paying attention to what's happening around you right it's it's you know you, you can make decisions and think you've kind of nailed it and then if you sit back and get too comfortable i think you un, you know can maybe sometimes underestimate um what you were trying to accomplish and so i think what what we all need to be mindful of and, and where we get anxiety and become uncomfortable is when you you haven't quite landed something you're feeling good about it but you haven't you haven't sort of set your sights on, on, on the next opportunity. And I think if we become complacent in what we're trying to do um, and we're not looking sort of left and right, um, I think that there's really not an opportunity to sort of advance things and be innovative. And so I think it's always making sure you're looking over your shoulder so that you don't just sort of sit back and say, hey, that what we did today or what that initiative, that campaign, um, all of the data that we used you know, led us down a path that was really valuable, and now all of a sudden you just kind of get, get too reticent and, 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 don't, and don't move off of something.
5: I would add to that, this isn't necessarily um, specific to the D2C industry as much as it may be specific to NBC Sports Group, but what keeps me up is um, we're, we're a media company at our core, and so direct-to-consumer is very new, it's very different, and, um, it's increasingly integrated into what we do as NBC Sports Group, but um, I'm, I'd like to be more bold. <laughs> I'd like to take more mm-hmm. risks, um, and that's sometimes challenging to do within the ecosystem where we find ourselves, and we're also the, you know, part of a parent company. Right, you have so many constraints. <laughs> right, around. Yeah. So, so. Right, right. We can make a, a yeah. decision
4: that you can't make. It to yeah. take you way right. longer to mobilize. Yeah, to so involved. that's what
5: keeps yeah. me up, yeah.
2: And that's interesting. There's a question specifically for you, Portia, uh, from Stephanie Jones. Um, she asks, what can we expect to see from NBC Sports to start engaging with younger fans, knowing they will be your main customers for the LA Olympics in 2028?
5: That's a good question. We um, are not yet – well, I shouldn't say – we are beginning to sort of think about that. It's, it sort of speaks to my question about I'd like to be more bold. I'd like to be more uh, aggressive. Um, we have some meetings scheduled, Stephanie, in the very near future to kind of think through that company-wide um, and come up with some ideas that we can all kind of coalesce and, and, and agree upon. I think we've got to do some things differently than what we're doing today. I don't know if I'm going to win out um, on, 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 the, on the sort of best ways to do that. Um, so I don't have any breaking news to share with you, Stephanie. But, but, but we, are, we are thinking about it. Um, and it's something that is definitely on my to-do list. I think of myself as kind of the chief disruption officer in the company. Um, and I think we're going to have to be a little more disruptive. And I look forward to us being a little more disruptive. Um, in the future.
4: But I think an interesting part of that question is really about the younger audience, right? You know, know, the question was directed to Portia about a particular thing, but I think it's really, you know, we're all faced with this, right? The consumer and the customer is becoming younger and younger and younger. And, you know, 10-year-olds have phones now. And so they are starting at such an earlier age to become... You know, brand affinity owners and 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 are starting to like influence decisions in the home in a way in which it's just un, unimaginable. And so I think for all of us, what right. regardless of of what we're doing or what we're trying to do, it's really honing in on that younger audience and, and understanding and communicating with them and and meeting them where they are and, and figuring out you know digestible, bite-sized things because they're they're not going to sit and watch You know the way that. You know, 20 years ago, someone who sat and watched as much Olympic content as they could, people aren't going to do that in the same way. So it's you know, it's snippets and snapshots and and you know, short short content and and short pieces of digestible information. And I think that's something that we all think about all of the time in terms of how to reach it. That younger, really savvier, if you will, um, more educated customer.
2: I'm going to direct this question from Matt Jones to uh, John and Carolyn. Um, what role does data play in deciding when and how to reach out to new audiences?
3: Uh, well, I'll take a start at that. I mean, it um, comes in a couple different ways, I think. If you're going to be reaching out to a new audience, it's a, you're essentially a form of prospecting where uh, you could do, as Kat kind of mentioned, a spray and pray or very broadcast, very broad, and that may make sense. But then very quickly um, you want to be seeing what's working and doubling down and sort of test and learn, A, B testing, optimizing as you go through. So the key is almost more um, creating feedback loops because, so that you actually are collecting data. If, it's, um, if there's no feedback loop, you have no data to sort of feed the, the, the cycle here around it all. And that's where broadcast just doesn't have great feedback loops. So digital is great for that. It's sort of a blessing and curse of being able to spend on all these um, digital properties is that there's tracking and cookies and and a very quick um, feedback loop on that. Now, sometimes it can be misleading because that data is not perfect and you have to take it all with some overlay of common sense. But Um, There's so much more analytics and data that can be brought to bear to those decisions about how to optimize across all these channels and and understand that multi-channel journey.
7: Yeah, I totally agree. I don't have much more to add. I would say we follow a a pretty similar approach where we do use a wide mix of channels for um, overall acquisition, but certainly if we're thinking about testing a new message, testing a new audience, we very much look to digital because of that feedback loop. I think to your point. Um, being mindful about it, I would say just, you know, broadly in how you're thinking about data, being mindful of it's a moment in time and it's one specific type of data. So just because something doesn't work in a Facebook message doesn't mean it's not the right message for TV or, or some other channel. Mm-hmm. So kind of taking it all with a grain of salt of what, what you're getting out of that test but then certainly, you know, being able to nimbly try new messages, try new audiences. So we typically use a lookalike model, but that only gets you so far, right? At a certain yep. point, you have to expand past that. So that's where we'll do it kind of quietly in digital to see if it works before we expand it broadly.
2: That's interesting. You, you said that traditional advertising has really been working for Peloton, which people would be surprised to hear, that television, you, you, people are saying that everything's moving toward digital, but television still works, right? Direct mail still works.
7: Absolutely, yeah. So direct mail, radio, basically any uh, TV, linear TV, any kind of old traditional um, advertising channel that people say doesn't work anymore, very much works for Peloton. It's very interesting. In part, that's our audience. In part, I think we, video is a help is um, a helpful tool when you're, you know, creating a, a new product in a new category. Using video to tell the story certainly helps. But you know, people say to us all the time. We're going to start doing TV because it's working for Peloton, and I, I think the you know the message is it has to work for your audience and your product. It may not work for something like the Patriots or Ticketmaster. It works for Peloton, so you have to really kind of start with who is your audience, what is the consumer need you're filling, and then what is the right medium to to um, to tell that message. And traditional TV has worked for us very well.
2: For sure. Uh, this next question is interesting. I think it's it's a great question for Jen. Um, and you know with, with the New York Rangers, we see this a lot where there's longtime legacy fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have newbies coming in., yep. right? So the question is, how can real legacy fans, which I think is an interesting term, be differentiated from fans engaged through marketing campaigns?
4: Yeah, so I think um, we, you know, uh, you hit the nail on the head. Where we have so many legacy fans, right? We've been sold out for, you know, since the Crafts bought the team back in 1994, and I think that it's really about f- making sure that the things that we're doing are still important to them, or bringing them along on the journey with us. And so I think that you know, I used that example earlier of taking the data that we had for all of these net new customers who were coming to a particular game and looking at what they were spending. Um, to help us make a decision about doing something different but at the same time it's being mindful that we're not doing it just because we have net new customers we have to make sure that it's still going to appeal to these legacy fans and i think for us that was making sure we found sort of the right in this case the right musical act so if we had just focused on sort of the newbies we might have gone in one very different direction but being i think you know uh, comfortable enough in who our core audience was and making sure that we're still still comfortable you know, making sh- bringing them along with us, we picked a musical act that I think met the needs of sort of everybody. So our legacy fans got some added value. They, ha- they felt like they were not um, alienated. And then anybody who was new and had come on, on a newer journey felt like they got something that was worth the value of the ticket that they had purchased. And so it's sort of that blended model of needing to make sure that you're appealing to both, but not forgetting that legacy customer.
2: Excellent. Excellent. So we are we are out of time. Um, thank you so much. I actually really enjoyed this panel and hearing from all of you. Such smart marketers. I learned a lot. I hope that everybody in the room did. Um, whoever, you know, asked a question, the, the hats are up there. And, Jess, I brought a Knicks hat for you, too, for you to wear uh, maybe on your
4: way You can
0: trade up. You can today. trade up if anyone wants to. <laughs>
2: But really enjoy everybody's time and enjoy the rest of the conference.
0: If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th Annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com.
2: This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.